This gospel message is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Hour, a ministry of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, a Reformed denomination that strives to be faithful to the Word of God and the historic confessions of the Reformed faith, also known as Calvinism. In love for our great God, we proclaim the Christian faith and life that is founded on God's sovereign particular grace. As God's Word is expounded, we pray that these messages are a blessing to you. Do you, friend, listening in today, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm not merely asking you how you would answer if someone asked you if you were a Christian. I'm asking this, do you know yourself by nature a sinner before a holy God And do you despise your sins, especially this about them, that they offend the very God who made you and gave you this earth to live on in your mind and your hands and feet and eyes? And do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as the atoning Savior for sin, a Christ who of his own work and not for anything in you pays the price for your sins that you might be freed from sin's guilt and dominion? And you have within you this desire to serve God with your life, to know this God ever more deeply, and to honor Him and to give Him glory in your life, a desire that leads you to battle mightily with remaining sin in you, to please Him. If not, if that's not you, then the call must come to you personally. Let go of your sins and your rebellions against this God that you know is there and know made you, and look to Christ alone for forgiveness of your sins and for strength for a life that's pleasing to God. There's a day of reckoning coming, and if you're found standing alone with your sins in your hands, there's no shelter for you, none. Protection is only found in the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord, your Christ, your Savior. But if you answer that question, yes, yes, what you described is me, then the question that we face today is, where do you turn for the explanation of the fact that that's you? Do you turn to yourself for the explanation? Or do you turn to a sovereign, irresistible grace of God that must have worked and is still working in your life as the only possible explanation for that very fact. Really, we don't even have to prove today that the explanation for that, if you answered the question yes, is the irresistible grace of God. We've already in past weeks proven that the explanation for the fact that that is you, that you believe that the explanation cannot possibly be you. And if it can't possibly be you, then an irresistible grace of God is the only other possibility. Remember, in the last two times we showed from Scripture that we are all totally depraved by nature. And that the result of that is that we are enslaved by that dead nature to sin. So that in everything, in our actions, and in our thoughts, and in our willings, we are bound to sin, enslaved to sin, dominated by sin, And no one can even see the kingdom of Christ and believe in Christ, come to Christ, and serve Christ. They're enslaved by sin. 
What explains then the fact that you embrace Christ for your only comfort in life and death and walk with him, the only explanation can possibly be a miraculous sovereign grace of God has done an irresistible work on you. Nonetheless, we will prove irresistible grace from Scripture today and next week, and we'll do so primarily from the teaching of the Lord when he was upon the earth. There is a unity in salvation, child of God. God has chosen his own in eternity. Jesus has given himself to the cross for the sake of those same elect, as we saw in limited atonement. And now that salvation predestined to be given to the elect, that salvation that Christ earned for them, must still come into the actual possession of those elect. And for that, the Holy Spirit comes to work an irresistible work that cannot fail in the hearts and lives of any of God's own. Irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. When the scriptures speak of God's grace, they're speaking of God's undeserved favor towards his people in Jesus Christ. His undeserved favor towards his people in Jesus Christ. That's what the scriptures mean, for example, when they say that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 6, verse 8. When Noah looked up to the Lord, there was favor toward Noah in the eyes of the Lord. There was grace. There was an undeserved favor in the eyes of the Lord toward Noah. Neither Noah nor anyone else who receives this favor deserves this favor of God. In fact, not only is this favor undeserved, what is deserved is the exact opposite of favor, favor, punishment. It's not just that we're neutral before God. As we've seen last time, we do everything possible to make ourselves guilty before God. We've rebelled and acted as though we are God when we are nothing. And it's not as though there's any justification for us doing so. The prophet Isaiah says that we are as grasshoppers in his sight. And again, later, that all the nations of the earth are like dust in a balance before him. That is, like tiny tiny specks of dust on one side of a scale. So minuscule that even the most sensitive scale does not pick up the weight. And if the kingdoms of the earth are described that way, specks of dust to God, and who are we as individuals who make up one tiny, tiny part of the nations of the earth? The tiniest fraction of a speck of dust before him. We're nothing in this vast universe, and yet we walk around placing imaginary crowns on our own heads as though we are gods and God should bow to us. And yet this God has favor toward his people who are like that. If you understand it at all, have any sense of it, you you almost say it can't be possible. When we all fell into sin, why didn't he just take his hand and, and wipe all these specks of dust away in a tiny fraction of a moment like you wipe dust off of your table or off of your desk? And yet instead, he gives us favor. He gives us his grace. He takes delight in us. He wants to have communion and fellowship with us. And then he makes that happen. Because grace, that undeserved favor, is much more than simply a nice desire or a nice feeling God has about his people. God's 
undeserved favor toward his people is not simply a favor that says, I'd really like to have fellowship with them, but there's nothing I can do about it. After all, they're totally depraved and I'm a holy God. But God's grace is also a power to actually carry out what it desires, to actually save the people he favors. It accomplishes the purpose. For by grace are you saved. Not just, for by grace are you felt nice about, but saved. Grace actually saves. It's rescuing. It's a power to deliver. It takes one out of the bondage of sin and corruption and sets him in the very covenant of God. It transforms him. takes something that was only ugly and repulsive and begins to make it lovely and beautiful in the eyes of God. Righteous as he is, fit for life in him, bound to him in love. The power of grace to do this is irresistible power. It is power that cannot be stopped. It is power that has its way, that accomplishes its purpose with its objects. It's like a giant tidal wave from a tsunami that crashes over anything in its path and nothing can stop it. Nothing. You've all seen pictures of great tidal waves from tsunamis that crash into the shore, come right over those barriers on the shore, flow over houses and buildings and walls, and nothing can stop it. It's an overwhelming force. So too, God's grace cannot be stopped by man if he is the object of that grace. It overruns, it takes him over, so that what in him was against God is not the only thing about him anymore. He's turned towards God by the power of this grace. It's interesting the canons of Dort use verbs that display this power in such a beautiful way, a panoply of verbs giving a beautiful description of the power of this grace. The third and fourth heads of doctrine on irresistible grace. Let me give some of those verbs. It's a grace that confers that rescues, that translates into a new kingdom, that accomplishes God's good pleasure, causes, powerfully illumines, efficaciously pervades the inmost recesses of the heart, opens the closed, softens the heart, infuses, quickens, actuates, resurrects from the dead, affects, enables, produces, and does all that without the prior consent of any man. That grace comes as that irresistible power to those whom God has given to his Son in eternity to be his children and for whom Christ died. That grace has its source in Christ who died for those objects of grace and earned that grace for them. That grace does not come to anyone else. The Spirit who brings that grace to them does not go beyond the limits of the purposes of Father and Son. If he did, every human being would be saved, for it's an unstoppable force. But he won't, and in fact he even can't, because there is no grace available for more than those whom the Father has chosen to himself and given to the Son. Grace was merited, this unstoppable force was merited by Christ on his cross, and he merited it for his own, for the sheep, and to them it shall powerfully go by the Spirit.
And therefore the Lord says in John 6, verse 37, All that the Father giveth me, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Now that doesn't mean that God's elect to whom alone this grace comes, it doesn't mean that they themselves do not try to resist it. It's an irresistible power, but that doesn't mean there is no resistance attempted. Even the elect, remember, are by nature dead and enslaved to sin, no different from anybody else in themselves. And therefore, they can't but naturally try to resist it when it comes to them in their life. The fact that it's irresistible grace even implies that that's the case. The only way to discover that something is irresistible is if there's something that has first tried to resist it and found out that it can't resist it. Then it can be described as irresistible. Well, the old nature, the old man of sin in all of God's own resists that grace of God. It resists it when it's first set upon them. And it resists it every day after that. But the resistance is entirely unsuccessful. It's like trying to stand with your arm outstretched to stop a tidal wave from the tsunami washing over you. It's a grace that breaks through the walls of resistance at its will. A grace that brings new life, brings new motivations, transforms us into sinner saints by its power and one day by the same power into saints and no sinners. Now, Arminius, at the time of the Synod of Dort, or before it, and the Arminians, said that God doesn't limit the giving of his grace to those elect. He sends that grace to all and every man. And they said that this grace is not powerful. It isn't an irresistible grace. In fact, they said it's very, very weak. It's weaker than any human being, and therefore it is highly, highly resistible. Because it is a grace that cannot do anything on the inside of a man. It's only something that can work on the outside. Its only power is to try to persuade a man to use his own free will to accept Salvation. God, as it were, sets salvation out on a plate before all men like a chocolate chip cookie. And God does everything in his power on the outside of men to convince them to take it. And that action on the outside of men to try to convince men to take it, that, that's his grace. It's trying to persuade, but that's all it can do. Nothing more than try to persuade. The word that the Arminians used at the time of the Synod of Dort was advise. His grace can only advise. It isn't a power. It can only advise men to take salvation. And only the people who are good enough and who listen well enough or who have this desire welling up in them from their own free will to take this salvation are the ones who accept it and allow it to come into their life. The grace is no different from one person to another. 
all men receive the same grace, the same advising. The difference in salvation is not the grace of God. The difference in salvation is the decision and action of any individual. God has absolutely no control over who takes this salvation and who doesn't. Maybe in the end no one will. And if no one does, there's not a thing God can do about it. The grace is weak. The Arminian really ends up presenting God, they'd never say this, of course, but presents God like the big bad wolf. Let me in, let me in. But unlike the big bad wolf, he has no power to blow the house in. Man is in control and God can do no more than beg and plead to accept his desire to save them. How different from the Lord's affirmation in John 6.37, All that the Father giveth me, they shall come to me. And how shall they come to me? By an irresistible grace given to them that leaves no doubt about it. For the Lord said, No man can come to me except it were given to him of my Father. By grace are you saved, except the Father draw him irresistibly. It is impossible that one come to him apart from that one being given to Christ by the Father. And it's equally impossible that one who has been given to him by his Father not come to him. They shall come to me. Irresistible grace will be the power to accomplish it. So grace is irresistible. And it's given to the elect. Even in the preaching and witnessing of the gospel where we seek to persuade men and we advise and we seek to convince, even in that preaching, it's true that grace is only coming by God to those given to Christ by His Father. When we preach and witness, we want to save all men. and We don't know who has been given to the Son and who has not. And if we've experienced this Grace, we want everybody we come into contact with to experience it. And we call all to repentance and faith and and do so urgently. And we say, all who believe will be saved. And that witness that we give is true. It's an established fact, a God-established fact, a reality that those who repent and believe will be saved. Not one will be cast out. But God is not giving His grace to all men when they hear that. But he's giving his grace only to those whom he's given to his Son, who will then, by that irresistible grace, perform what is commanded, repent and believe. He knows those who are his. We don't. We seek to persuade men. We're gracious to everyone. His grace comes never beyond the elect and never only on the outside to be resisted, but going inside and working faith in exactly those in whom he wants to work that faith. And so, child of God, if your life is a life of repentance at your sins, and a life of looking to Christ in faith only as your source of hope before God, and a walking with Him, and a battling of the sin that remains in you, then you must know that He has sent an irresistible force into your life, 
a grace, a favor, and it will never run out. And that you may look up into the eyes of your father like Noah looked up into the eyes of God and you may see grace in his eyes. Favor. Love has done this. Love has raised the dead. Love has given sight to the blind. And grace and love will do it still until it takes you to the end determined of glory and life with him forever. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we're thankful for grace, a power, an irresistible grace. Apart from that, Lord, we have nothing. With that, we have everything. And therefore, to thee be all praise, to thee be glory, now and forever, for the grace that is effective in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. The gospel message you have just heard was sponsored by the Protestant Reformed Churches through its radio program, The Reformed Witness Hour. We hope that you have been edified and encouraged by this message. If you would like more information about the Reformed faith or the Protestant Reformed Churches, feel free to visit our website at reformedwitnesshour.org or email us at mail at reformedwitnesshour.org.